This is Pathways to Resilience with Melissa Santos. The podcast where real people share real stories, helping us build our playbook toward resilience. Welcome back to Pathways to Resilience, a podcast of community solutions. Uh, We are honoring Sexual Assault Awareness Month by talking with some of our team members today who work in our sexual assault services um, about some of the realities and myths uh, and barriers of uh, the prevalence of sexual assault in our communities um, and hoping that uh, hoping that you learn something and perhaps uh, find something eye-opening uh, to be able to open up empathy, uh, inclusion, and understanding. Uh, I am joined today by three of my colleagues, Lydia, Cassandra, and Abby. So Lydia Cruz, I'll introduce her first. Her pronouns are she, her, and Aya. She's the program supervisor for our sexual assault program here at Community Solutions. She has a bachelor's in social work from the University of California, Monterey Bay, actually joined us as an intern and fell in love with the work um, and has been with us now for nearly five years. She was really drawn to the work from her passion to make a deep impact in the community and knows that this work, supporting survivors of sexual assault, is really hard work um, and and needs people who are willing to come to the table um, and walk alongside folks. So welcome, Lydia. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Cassandra Reyes, pronouns are she, her, and hers, is a sexual assault case manager with Community Solutions She studied psychology with an emphasis in mind and motivation of sex offenders, and she's drawn to the work as a survivor and also knowing many survivors that are in her life. She provides legal and peer counseling support to survivors of sexual assault and has also done work supporting survivors of domestic violence. Thank you for being here, Cassandra. Thanks for having me. And then third is Abby Wise. Her pronouns are she, her, and Aya. And she serves as a sexual assault advocate at Community Solutions. She began her work as an educator in violence prevention at her alma mater, the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, California transplant. Abby went on to work as the sexual assault response team coordinator in Ventura, California, where she really developed her passion for working firsthand with survivors. In her role as an advocate, she helps her clients understand their rights navigate the criminal justice system, learn healthy coping skills, and bears witness as they transition from a place of crisis to empowerment. Welcome, Abby. Thank you, Melissa. Happy to be here. And as you all can hear, I don't have a Southern accent, so this is what my voice sounds like. (laughs) I love that. I I do want to just give a trigger warning to anyone listening that we will be talking about sexual assault um, Cassandra, you know, anyone will be sharing, maybe sharing examples of sexual assault. And so if today is a day that that might be too much for you, you could tune in another time. Um, otherwise, we appreciate you being here. We're going to just start with what is sexual assault and how is it misunderstood? Yeah, so sexual assault is a big umbrella term. Uh, but to give you the definition of what sexual assault is, It refers to any unwanted sexual contact or behavior 
that occurs without explicit consent of the victim. Um, as I mentioned, sexual assault is an umbrella term that can be broken up into a lot of different pieces, right? Which is why we like to say it falls under the umbrella because um, it can be defined as either touching or non-touching, right? So even within that, um, so like with touching, that can be like attempted rape. It can be spousal, maritable rape, um, child molestation, uh, penetration of the victim's body, which at that point is considered rape. Um, and then there's other ones that are non-touching, right, which can be catcalling, uh, voyeurism, offensive jokes. Sometimes people don't realize that saying a joke um, in sometimes inappropriate jokes, right, in a workplace setting um, can cannot maybe one person might perceive it as a funny joke, but another person may be listening in and that person may take it a different way and make them uncomfortable depending on what's being said. There's been situations where maybe somebody at work has a poster of a naked girl, right? To them, that's like, ooh, that's my picture that's in my locker. But if somebody else were to see that, that can also be perceived like a sexual harassment. Um, so it, it is really, it's a it's a heavy, heavy topic, like you mentioned, Melissa. And in itself, we can talk for hours in regards mm -hmm. to all the different pieces of sexual assault. I just really appreciate this umbrella or this spectrum to really um, have people understand that sexual assault is more than only rape. Um, and of course, you know, rape is sexual assault. Um, and when we say that, I'm sure you'll talk about some of the statistics. Last I knew it was like one in three women had been sexually assaulted in their lifetime. It may be more than that. Um, so I'm, you know, I can actually, an example, like I was, I remember you just made me think about this and how much we push things down, right? Because we're, we're in society, especially as women, kind of um, in some ways are are encouraged just to take this and walk. But like I was at an event once and um, a, a man came up to me with, to, just to say hello and could sort of whispered that he wondered, but he bet I looked really good under the dress that I was wearing. So would that be considered? Sexual assault? Yes, yes, because it's unwanted, right? It's unwanted. A lot of the times, too, there's that. Um, it gets misunderstood, right? Uh, and I'll give another example. Say, for example, um, you're on a date, you go on a date, and you are enjoying yourself. And maybe you were okay with that person giving you a, a kiss on the cheek, right? That was okay. That's something that um, was consensual. But then maybe down the line after the date was over, um, this person decided to give you a kiss on the lips, mm -hmm. right? However, if you did not consent and you you verbally said no and your body language said no, that person does not give them the right to give you a kiss, right? Mm -hmm. And at that point, it is sexual assault because it is any unwanted sexual advance towards you. So let's talk about consent. What does consent look like? You talked about verbal. You talked about body language. Yeah. So consent is the idea that someone has agreed to have um, sexual contact with someone without pressure or coercion and without being under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Um, like anything else, consent should involve understanding and agreeing to participate in this uh, sexual activity. Um, sexual activities can include kissing, touching, sexual intercourse of any kind. And keep in mind, uh, you want to be able to 
Ask for permission before starting any sexual activity. Consent is a verbal, voluntary yes, and with everyone agreeing to the activity. Um, and I know Lydia has touched a little bit on that, and it's very key. Communication is very key when um, interacting with others. Consent uh, is freely given and taken before, during, and after. So someone can change their mind in the middle of it and decide, you know, like, I'm not too comfortable with this. And that's okay. It is important to know if someone is high or drunk or asleep, they cannot give consent. Um, so just keep that in mind. I know that's a big thing. And, you know, so important, right? Yeah, because, you know, sometimes people um, intentionally go and get drunk or, you know, get high to to then be able to perform or something, you know, but definitely having like these safe conversations and really discussing this before anything takes place is very important. Uh, pressuring someone to say yes is not consent either. Um, so, and also like not hearing a no, right? So mm -hmm. if someone isn't outright saying like, no, um, maybe they're just being very passive about it. That also does not mean yes. Um, Always pay attention to body cues, as Lydia has mentioned. Sometimes you can get more cues out of people when you're looking at their body language. And again, that's another way to identify when you do not have consent. And then just keep in mind, you always want to be respectful of the answer. I know for some people, it could feel like a personal attack on their self-worth or value, and that's not at all the case. And a lot of times I can build resilience within an individual. And in general, uh, consent should also uh, be asked every time sexual activities changes. So, for example, you go into, you start off with kissing and perhaps you want to lead more in the direction of a sexual encounter. Ask before you mm -hmm. change that in that direction. And just in general, you know, if there's no consent, that is sexual assault, and it's not okay. Another thing that comes up frequently is most states have a set age of consent, and that's between 16 and 18. For example, in the state of California, the legal age of consent is 18. Some states have what's called the Romeo and Juliet law to prevent the prosecution when both parties are close in age, so someone who's maybe 17 and the other one just turned 18. Um, California is not one of those states. So be sure to check your local laws, your state laws, uh, for accurate information. Uh, laws vary from state to state. So does that mean, Cassandra, that <clears throat> if I'm under, the, in California, if I'm under the age of 18, even if I said, say yes, that if someone's over the age of 18, I'm not considered at of the age to be able to actually make but even that yes means that you don't have really legal consent to have sex with me. Exactly. Or sexual advance. Yeah. So that would be considered statutory rape. Mm -hmm. And that's sex between two people and one is under the legal age of consent. The minor has consented to having sex, as you had mentioned. However, this consent is not considered valid since juveniles are considered too young to consent. Got it. Yeah. And statutory rape is legally different from child molestation and forcible rape. But the reason why rape is used in this situation is because uh, they can often be 
pressured or manipulated uh, into that sexual activity. Statutory rape in California is also a wobbler offense, meaning it can be charged as a misdemeanor or felony depending on the facts of the case, such as age difference and types of sexual acts between the parties. Got it. As you're talking, I just think about how when we, I just think about society and the messages and the media that we get as women in particular, but I think it's not just, it's not just, it's not really only gen, our gender, um, but around um, acceptance, not being rejected. When you brought up those words around the discomfort, we're not taught to say no or to ask or give consent and these assumptions. And I just wonder among those things, is that one and what are what are other barriers to survivors coming forward or or just talking about huh i think maybe that i wasn't comfortable with this or i don't think i gave consent in this situation yeah so there is a long list as to why a survivor may not come forward melissa um you just brought up a good one for me obviously it's not just women who are survivors there's that misconception right there's that misunderstanding that for the most part, we see women as the primary uh, victims, but it doesn't it doesn't just involve women. There's also male survivors. Right. So that's a barrier in itself. A lot of the times um, we see male survivors not wanting to come forward because for them, it's um, it's more of a I'm a man. I'm a male. I shouldn't have let this happen to me. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, why? How could I let somebody overpower me and do this to me? Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a barrier right there in itself. And and I think we see that a lot. So we see a lot of women come forward, but we don't see the males for that same reason because it's like, I shouldn't have let that happen to me. Mm-hmm. This shouldn't have even happened in the first place. I'm a stronger person. I should have been able to defend myself. Um, another reason too is again, shame and embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't believe I let that happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I I should have been able to just walk away and say no and not let them take advantage of me. Mm-hmm. Um, another reason is because they're not they feel like they're not going to be believed. Mm-hmm. That one's a big one, um, especially if there's no support from family members or from friends, because there's a lot of isolation. A lot of the times, um, if somebody is in a relationship uh, with their perpetrator they get isolated, right? Mm-hmm. They distance themselves from family or sometimes they're not around anybody that they can go to. Um, so then it's harder for them to even just be able to reach out to family. Um, there's situations where, you know, family doesn't approve of the person they're with. So when they um, are trying to reach out for support, the family is no longer there to to provide that. Um, a lot of it too is the reason why they don't come forward is fear of retaliation. Well, what's going to happen if I come forward, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, if I go to the police, are they even going to believe me? Are they going to believe my story, right? Because we've seen, we've seen situations where a survivor goes and makes a report. And depending on how they get questioned, they just don't feel like the officers believe them or the way that they go about it, right? Which I know it's um, we'll probably get into a little bit more, but... Um, they just don't feel like they're going to get that support from law enforcement. Um, and then there's also that piece of the financial support. 
sometimes the perpetrator is the main breadwinner. So for them to be able to leave their partner, it's just not easy because they have to consider like if they have children, where are they and their children going to go or where are they going to go? Um, there's that fear of being um, homeless, right? Not having anywhere to be. And how are they going to be able to support themselves? And within that, it's not knowing the um, the resources that's around them, right? A lot of the times, um, a lot of survivors don't realize that there's a lot of organizations or agencies that can provide them support, right? Like our Solutions to Violence team, we're here as advocates to support and whatever way we can um, to the survivors. And I think a lot of the times they don't realize that they have this this resource out there or that there's other agencies that can provide them financial assistance or even housing, right? Um, another one that we see a lot, even with the survivors that we work with, and I know um, everywhere else too, is language. A lot of the time our survivors are coming from different areas, different countries, um, coming into the U.S., and Maybe Spanish is the only language they know or any other language. And so it's hard for them to even be able to seek that support because who are they going to talk to, especially if they don't they don't know anybody, they don't have any family here, no friends, they came on their own. And so that makes it very challenging for them to just be able, being able to even ask simply as saying help, right? Because yeah. um, they don't even know who to call. And I think a lot of it, too, is the immigration piece, right, because of that. Um, so language being a barrier, there's also the immigration barrier where, well, if you leave me, I'm going to call immigration on you and they're going to take you back um, to your country and then you're not going to see your kids again. So they use that, right? They, they bring in fear. But I think something to put out there is that law enforcement is not immigration. They're not here to... Uh, deport anybody they're here to help the survivor which is something that has to be explained to a survivor to let them feel more at ease that you know law enforcement is not ICE they're not immigration they're not going to pick them up and send them back to wherever it is right yeah. um and and but even in itself it's such a hard piece because you know you're speaking to somebody of authority yeah. you don't know what's going to happen they don't know what they're going to do so so that's a that's a big one um and I'd imagine, Lydia, not everyone is in supportive communities like ours, where people where we've done so much work to bridge collaboration between advocates and, um, you know, law enforcement. Um, yeah. Yeah. I heard a couple of themes that I just want to point out there, or some things just kind of popped up with me. One is just that acknowledgement that that sexual assault is more than just a one-time event but that can be happening long-term within a relationship. As you just spoke, kind of alluded to someone feeling stuck in a relationship. It could be stuck in a marriage, be in a marriage. It doesn't have to be with somewhat a one-time thing with someone that you don't know um, or that you're not in a relationship with. Um, and then I was also just struck, I think uh, that something I've heard a lot is just how generational trauma can impact a survivor feeling like he or she or they will be believed um, because of when you go to someone and share your story and they have their own history that they've never shared and they're, you know, they're par because it's such so pervasive and has been for so many generations. Um, I think of that Brene Brown empathy video where in order to really empathize with you, I have to tap into something within myself that can relate. And I've just had that 
experience and witness that experience that I just can't even go there to believe you because that means I need to tap into something that I've been hiding um, for a really long time. And that just it complicates this sort of generational trauma that can um, be a barrier. Yeah, that brings up a good point, Melissa, because, you know, when we think of marriage, right, it's between you and your partner. And again, there's that misconception um, that, you know, oh, it's my it's my husband, it's my wife. That doesn't that doesn't mean I'm I'm being raped or that's not sexual assault. Right. Uh, But again, consent still ties into that. So if you're telling your partner, no, I do not want to have any sexual relationship with you right now, they should respect that. Um, We've had a lot of um, survivors come forward and say, well, I thought that was my duty as the wife. No, this is what the Bible says, that I should be listening to my husband and do as um, what my husband asked me to do, right? Because they're the they're the king of the castle. You're supposed to listen to them and do whatever they say. If they're telling me put a plate on the table, I'm going to make the plate. So it would be the same thing when it comes to the bedroom that I should just listen to um, what he says, whether I agree to it or I consent. Um, that's that's my wifely duties, right? But I think we've had to also have those conversations with survivors and let them understand that no. That is sexual assault, and that is also not okay. If you said no, that should have been more enough of an answer, whether that's your husband or your partner, boyfriend, whoever it is. Thank you for that. So you you touched upon the legal process. Um, so someone comes forward. I'm wondering some examples of how just the legal process itself can be a barrier and can be victim blaming. Um, and also, you know, what are other options of coming forward and healing that beyond, beyond just the legal system? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, so it's a multi-part question, so I'll break yeah. it up. So I do want to acknowledge that most survivors are not reporting their sexual assault. Only one in three survivors are actually going to the police and reporting that they were sexually assaulted. And that's according to Rain. So those are national statistics for the U.S. So we can see just with that, that a lot of survivors are not feeling comfortable going to law enforcement. Um, And through my work as an advocate, I've worked with a lot of different law enforcement members, um, patrol officers and detectives. And I've worked with some folks who are very trauma informed, who thank the survivors for sharing their stories, for who give them space and provide them with options. And I've also worked with, with um, excuse me, I've also worked with law enforcement who have said things that have been harmful and have really led to survivors that I've worked with shutting down. Um, for example, um, I've worked with an officer who's said something along the lines of, why didn't you report this when it happened? Mm-hmm. And for a survivor to hear that, um, that can be really diminishing um, it might lead to them thinking, you know, why did I even come here? And maybe the survivor is thinking that for the entire interview of why am I here? They're not going to do anything about it. And so it can be a really small comment for the um, detective to make, but it can actually be really debilitating for that survivor and for their healing process as well. So I think that making sure that we have trauma-informed law enforcement who have consistent training is really key to improving 
how the legal process treats victims of crimes in general, not only survivors of sexual assault. Also, um, the legal process doesn't always go the way that survivors may think. I think a lot of survivors maybe have come in and they are familiar with the courtroom because they've seen it on Law and Order. Right. Or they've seen it on, um, I don't know, um, I don't know, what is it? It's like crime, not crime junkies, but... All these on CSI, CSI, whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah. CSI, yeah, exactly. Thank you, Melissa. Uh (laughs) But that is, there's the crime at the beginning of the episode, and the person is sentenced at the end of the episode. Uh And it's not that, like, open and shut. It's not that simple. We have a lot of continuances, and unfortunately, especially because of COVID, there's a backlog of cases. It might take years for a district attorney to even be able to prosecute a sexual assault. We have, um, I know um, some of my colleagues have been working with survivors who have been waiting for years just to get to sentencing. So maybe they've reached a decision in the trial, but they still don't have a sentence for the perpetrator. Um, I've also worked with a survivor who um, she reported her assault. And she wanted law enforcement to know and she wanted to be safe and for something to be done about it. But she didn't necessarily want him to stay in jail and want him to be prosecuted. And sometimes the survivor's wishes are not honored. It's more about the justice system. It's more about what the district attorneys want. And I can't say if that's the right or the wrong thing, but I do know that that can be, um, that can be hurtful to survivors to feel like their voice isn't heard. I'd imagine a barrier just all of all that a survivor may be taking on around the res- their with the responsibility that they w- might think that they hold around the outcome for their perpetrator. Exactly that. Yeah. They're thinking um, that I'm the cause of them being mm-hmm. incarcerated. And a lot of the survivors I've worked with, I've let them know, no, they're in there because of their own actions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If they wouldn't have sexually assaulted anyone, then this wouldn't be happening to them. And you standing up for yourself could be you standing up for other survivors down the line as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to point out, Lydia made a great point earlier about how male survivors may feel uncomfortable going forward to police. And I did want to note some other communities that might also be uncomfortable going to the police. And that is LGBTQ plus survivors and BIPOC survivors because of historical mistreatment by law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So I do want to acknowledge that that might be different for each community. Um, We're seeing a lot of backlash, especially with the trans community, which we know is disproportionately affected by sexual violence. So I do want to note that. And I think that's an important conversation to have. I agree. Can you, can maybe you or one of you say more about, because I mean, we are definitely seeing so much of that right now in the media and it's not new. It's just we have media more at our fingertips um, of the trans community being disproportionately affected by this. Mm -hmm. Um, So the statistics that I've looked at have been largely from the Trevor Project, which is a really great resource for learning more about that community and what we can do to help protect them. I think that by dispelling a lot of myths about this community, you know, um, I'm from North Carolina, as I mentioned. And one thing that was really big t- in North Carolina was um, what's called HB2, which was a bill that prevented trans people from using the restroom in which they identify. Mm-hmm. And that was because of misinformation 
about trans people being perpetrators and harming women, supposedly, in restrooms when there wasn't a single case of that ever happening. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot, dispelling a lot of that misinformation and saying, you know, we're not seeing that trans people are statistically perpetrators of violence. That doesn't mean that they can't be. Anyone can be a perpetrator of violence. But statistically, they're much more likely to be victims. So I think that starting by dispelling those myths and paying more attention to who are the people who um, who may not be as equally served and how can we meet them where they're at and help them have the same access to services because they deserve the same victim rights as any other college-educated victim that we're seeing, right? Or not that they can't be college-educated, but maybe the like white demographic college-educated that people have access to advocacy and reporting options in a university that should go for all different communities. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What are other, so, you know, we when we talked in our preparation for this, it was really important to understand too that you can come forward and get help and support and healing and not have to take legal action. Mm-hmm. What are other options if that, if taking legal options d- doesn't feel safe? Yeah. Um, so that's a great question. Um, so one thing that survivors can do is that if they are at a college campus is they have what's called Title IX. So they can actually make a report to their university and the Title IX office will handle that within the university. And sometimes they'll even hold a trial. Um, this can lead to a lot of different options for survivors on college campuses Um, especially if they have um, what's called a care office. So that's where I actually got my start. Um, It was called Collaboration for Assault Response and Education. And at these different universities, they'll have access to no contact orders, which is different from the um, the asking for a restraining order within the criminal justice process. So they can have a no contact order on campus. They may also um, have changes in their class schedule, Um, accommodations for living arrangements, and that can be really helpful to work with a campus advocate to have those accommodations. If it does go to um, have um, disciplinary measures, then um, the school may considering suspending the offender or even expelling them altogether. And that could all be without any report to police? That would be with a report to the Title IX office. The Title IX office. Exactly. Um, So that's one option. Mm -hmm. Another option, which is still within the legal system, but another thing that survivors can do is they can ask for a restraining order. Mm -hmm. So that's different than going to the police department. So with a lot of the cases that we handle being sexual assault cases, um, survivors could actually ask for a civil restraining order. So a temporary civil restraining order, and they can have an advocate. Um, I would recommend people reach out to their local advocacy centers to learn more about this, or maybe even reaching out to self-help to see how to best do this. Um, But I've had a survivor where, unfortunately, her case did not move forward um, to be prosecuted by the district attorney. However, she did want to ensure that she had that protection for herself. And so one thing that she did is she reached out and she um, and she requested to have a civil harassment um, restraining order, so that the survi- so the survivor is safe from being um, reached out to from the um, for the next three years. Right. So so that can be a really helpful thing for um, survivors to know. Um, 
And if it is um, a partner, a spousal um, rape situation, as just was described earlier, um, they can ask for a domestic violence restraining order if that's their husband or their partner who's the abuser. So and if nothing else, tell a friend, tell a therapist, tell a, right, a trusted someone. Absolutely. Um, right. Just even just breaking the secret and the shame of that, um, even if going to someone that's part of a system doesn't feel safe. Um, right. Like just you don't have to keep it. You don't have to keep it a secret. Absolutely. There's a lot that there's a lot of support, um, a lot of different advocacy centers throughout the country. Um, so I just would really encourage folks to, you know, um, to research, do their research, learn about um, the different legislation in your area, speak with an advocate who has expertise in this, um, and learn about what options that you have for support, for emotional support. No one should have to go through this alone. Yeah. And if you are a survivor and you are listening, just know that you're not alone and there is support. Absolutely. No matter how recent or how long ago that may have happened. So we we typically end with the question, what is resilience? Um, but here I'd, I would like to ask how. How have you seen resilience in the survivors that you have served? So this is, um, there's always the light at the end of the tunnel, right? Um, and something I always like to tell the survivors that we've worked with is like, you know, right now we're in this dark place. But down that line, and that can be months, that can be years from now. Don't anticipate to obviously see see a change right away, right? Because I think a lot of the times we see survivors being hard on themselves. Mm. Like I can't, like they they just go into this dark place. And I always like to tell them and remind them, like we are here now. But come time, you're going to be shining bright. You're going to be out there making um making changes within yourself and within the community. And one of the ways that we've seen that a lot with the survivors that we work with is they become advocates themselves, whether they realize it or not. They start to see um, things that are not right in the community, right? Even like when it comes to like domestic violence or just sexual assault, if they see something that, that that's not right, they're standing up, even though they may be scared or not really sure as to whether they should step in or not. I've I've seen some survivors where they they go out there and make those changes and step up and have even come forward to talk about their story and share it with others to let others know that they're not alone, right? Um, so that's something we've seen. And even within um, our team, our Solutions to Violence team, um, we have a survivor leadership. And it's primarily run by survivors, like what are some activities that they would like to do together? You know, we've had activities where they come together and do rock paintings where we leave little rocks with little messages. We've done Zumba together, which is always a fun time mm -hmm. to do. Um, and it's just really a space where they come together, debrief and talk. And, you know, being being that April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, we do have a survivor leadership retreat that we've been um, hosting for about three years. Now this is going to be our third year, actually. Um, and it's all for the survivors with um, with their opinions on it, too. Like, what are some things that they want to see? What are some stuff that they want to know? So we've had survivors become advocates. And then they go and share their story and help help support others as well. So that's that's one way we've seen that, that change so within them. 
So almost it's like when they're able to break the silence within themselves and really find that voice. Like you said, that could take weeks, months, years to be able to then use that voice um, for others and helping and connecting with others. Yeah, that's beautiful. Beautiful. Where can people, you know, Abby, you talked a lot about resources throughout the country. Is there a hotline? Where can people, what's the best place for people just to start with finding support? Give me one second. <laughs> okay, thanks. Obviously, communitysolutions.org, our website, if you're in uh, our area, but nationally, Abby will pull up the um, pull up the hotline. And also just want to say, um, first of all, thanks to each of you for being here for the work that you do. Um, and to uh, I'm looking forward to the next episode as well, where we're actually here from some survivors to kind of put a, a personal story to everything that you just talked about um, today. So thank you for being here. So the um, National Sexual Assault Telephone Hotline that is national for the United States is 800-656-HOPE. So 800-656-4673. And that is for RAIN, which is also a great, great resource for any statistics or research that you're doing regarding sexual violence. Want to give their website? Their website is www.rain.org. Great. And that's RAIN, R-A-I-N. Two N's. N, 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 R-A-I-N. I knew there was something in there that we <laughs> should say. www.rain.org. You got it. Thank great you. Sorry, Thank you so much. The great thing about these websites, too, and these hotlines is that they have the numbers to the local rape crisis centers. Great. So depending where you're located, um, say, for example, if you're in our area, um, then they would connect you actually to community solutions to get connected for services as well. So that's another great thing about um, these national websites or even hotlines is they connect you to your nearest resources so you can get connected right away. Important to hear. It is a, an incredibly connected network um, that's pre quite impressive, actually, in our world of behavioral health and things uh, where we're not so connected, it can be di more difficult. Um, and again, a reminder that calling that hotline does not mean that you're calling the police. It doesn't mean that you have to do anything. You don't have to take any steps. Um, it can just be a first step in using your voice to see what's available to you. Yes, they're all confidential. Yes. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate you, Lydia, Abby, and Cassandra. Thank you for being with me today. Um, and I, I really, again, just appreciate um, the way that you step up in our community for some of the most, the most vulnerable. Well, thank you for letting us um, come on and talk on the podcast and raise awareness and spread awareness on sexual assaults. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you. It was nice being to work with you today. Thanks for listening to Pathways to Resilience, an initiative of Community Solutions. For more information, please visit our website, www.communitysolutions.org.